Let's hear God's word. We'll read from the Acts of the Apostles in chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 and verse 13. We will not be looking at our series on the church tonight until we figure out what's happening with our winter travels and people are going to be away and it's going to be the holiday season. So um, I'm not sure exactly when we'll return to that, but we're going to look at this chapter in Acts this evening. Acts 4, verse 13. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another and said, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them strongly to speak no longer to any man in this name. When they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them, on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old, on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people devise futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all boldness while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them, and bring the proceeds of the sales, and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet." And especially verse 4, uh, chapter 4, sorry, verse 37. 
at the end of the chapter where we're told a man named Joseph was called Barnabas by the apostles, a son of encouragement, having land sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, when we go into the Acts of the Apostles here and see the power of the Holy Spirit in the growth of the New Testament church, we see a lot of commotion. We see the Holy Spirit poured out in abundant power in an unusual way. But we also see the attacks of the enemy who is very interested um, to destroy the work of Christ at this time. We're told in the letter to the revelation of, of John in chapter 12 that the, the great beast raged against the seed of the woman to devour it and destroy it, and that's Christ. And when he was caught up to God, the great beast then turned to the woman and raged against her and spewed forth water to drown her. And that's a very dynamic picture of the aggression and rage that Satan has towards the church because he cannot attack Christ anymore, who is now exalted over all things. So he turns his rage to us and to the church. And here, as the church is given this unusual manifestation of power and blessing, you, you see this mixture of great blessing and great attack happening at the same time. So there's a lot of wrestling and commotion in these early chapters of Acts. And the situation here is one of great opposition and danger to the church. We read there that Peter and John were brought before the Sanhedrin because they had healed a man in the temple who had clearly been paralyzed. And in the name of Christ, they had given the man strength and he had been fully restored. And he was walking around telling everyone, this enraged the Sanhedrin who were at the, that point dominated by Satan. And the Sanhedrin had thought that they could quench and destroy the gospel by killing Christ and by sealing his tomb and that that would be the end of this sect and that Judaism could continue. And when there are reports and rumors of a resurrection and appearances and an ascension and then there are reports coming from the temple that his followers are no longer running away and hiding, but they are standing in the temple proclaiming Christ, and they are exercising the same power that Christ had exercised. The Sanhedrin thought they had killed that. And here are Peter and John exercising that power, and they are enraged, and they say they find no fault with them, and that they cannot deny the miracle happened, but they say... In case it spreads any further, let's threaten them and give a, an official edict not to speak in his name. And it obviously doesn't work. Peter and John are just filled with more boldness. But that's the kind of situation in the church um, that we find in chapter 4 onwards in the Acts of the Apostles. The possibility of great blessing the possibility of seeing the power of Christ, a faith that is buoyant in the apostles in seeing that work, but also the danger of, the, of being afraid of the Sanhedrin and others, and the danger of discouragement. Because this sits on a knife edge. We read it and we know that they were still encouraged afterwards, but that wasn't guaranteed. Peter and John could have crumbled before the Sanhedrin. The church, the church could have been intimidated by the edict and shut its mouth. It's not we read the Acts and we know how it all panned out. But you've got to remember at this time, these men are in danger of their lives. And this is a small group of people surrounded by a zealous religious people that want to crush Christ's way. It's not straightforward. 
Peter and John could easily run away. The church could easily become discouraged. And you see at points throughout Acts, and even in Paul's ministry, when the discouragement did come in. Uh, Paul went to Athens and Corinth, and at one point he thought he would meet Titus there. And when Titus didn't meet him there, Paul said that he he was vexed and he was extremely discouraged and lonely when he was in Corinth. And he found no rest in his soul that he was there on his own with so much opposition. So these aren't supermen, and neither are we. And what I want to bring before you is that um, the work of the gospel in Acts, or today, it can only go on through human hearts that can be encouraged or discouraged. The work of the gospel, although God is sovereign in it and it is certain in his hand. He uses us. This is it. This is the church. And as you know, we are fallen and our hearts, though sometimes buoyant and floating at the top with encouragement, can easily sink and become discouraged, become complacent, um, become uh, so distressed that we can feel like giving up because they do a a miracle here and everyone should acknowledge it, but they don't. That could be a source of great discouragement. And at the end of chapter 4, after this episode, the Holy Spirit just announces that there's this man called Barnabas in verse 36. His name's Joseph, but they called him Barnabas because he was a son of encouragement. So the Holy Spirit is stroking that in there. And we're to be alert immediately that he wants us to think about encouragement in light of what has happened. Because the apostles need encouragement and the church needs encouragement. And God obviously used Barnabas for that purpose. Um, The heart, as I've just said, it is spiritual and it is emotional. And it doesn't sit unaffected by everything that goes on around it. For every single Christian, there is a spectrum of encouragement and discouragement based on what we see. And um, what is encouragement? If Barnabas is called here the son of encouragement, what does that mean? What is encouragement? Well, we know what encouragement is by understanding what discouragement is. And the word comes from the word courage. That's where it comes from. From the Latin cor, which means heart. The Latin, coronary, bypass. The cor is the heart. And if you are discouraged, your heart has sunk. If you are, if you don't have cor, if you are discouraged, then You have lost heart. So to be encouraged is to be enheartened. And for the heart to be healthy and full of faith and expectation and power. That is what it means to be encouraged. So there's the spectrum. We can be encouraged or we can be discouraged. And the apostles obviously identified Barnabas as someone notable in this area. He was a son of encouragement because he obviously encouraged others. Now, he was a Levite, we're told that, in verse 36. He was a Levite, so he was already committed to worship. He was a Jew. He was trained in Judaism. And he, he may have ministered in the temple at points, and he certainly at points could teach God's law. But he'd obviously heard the gospel and embraced it and was known among the apostles as someone who had been a Levite, and he was from Cyprus originally. So he was either a Levite that lived in Cyprus and ministered there, or he was a Levite that lived near Jerusalem who was from Cyprus and had moved because of being a Levite. And um, the name that's given to him here 
though his name is Joseph, they rename him. And that's significant in itself. Some people think that this man may have known the Lord Jesus Christ, that this man may have been one of the 70 that Christ sent out to spread the gospel throughout Israel. There are many people who figure out ways of connecting him to that, and that may be true. But he, he's certainly seen as a gifted man by the apostles. They figure that out right away. And though he has a biblical name, Joseph, they nickname him Barnabas. And that's an Aramaic name. The bar means son. And remember Jesus said to Simon, you are Simon bar Jonah. Simon, son of John. He is bar Naba. And Naba means to encourage or to exhort. So he is bar Naba, the son of exhortation or the son of encouragement. It's interesting to note name changes in the Bible. The Holy Spirit is putting a little clue in here, a key to unlock who this man is. These name changes are, are significant. You remember Jesus nicknamed two of his disciples, John and James. He called them the sons of thunder uh, because of the way they behaved and the way they spoke and the, the zeal and the thumos that they had for the gospel in those early stages. And he said, you're the sons of thunder. Later, John could comfortably call himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. So the son of thunder became the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who wrote so much about love. Simon himself was given a nickname. You are a stone. You are a rock. There are so many other examples in Scripture. Jacob was a supplanter, a wrestler, who wrestled with God. He wrestled with his brother in the womb, but then his name was changed to Israel, a prince of God, or one who has prevailed with God. So I'm I'm, uh, preaching to the choir here. Um, You know all the other examples of name changes in the Bible, and they tell us so much. Gideon was so afraid to rout out the false worship and false religion all around him. Even his own father's household had, had just accepted that invasion of the church and false worship. And he did it in the night and he tore down the idol in the middle of the town. And they nicknamed him Jerubal, which means Baal will contend with you. In other words, you've broken down this altar and Baal's going to get you back for this. That's what they nicknamed Gideon. So all of these names have significance. He's called the son of encouragement. So he obviously had such a spiritual influence on people and had um, demonstrated this already so much that the apostles trusted him and utilized him and they named him after a grace. They, they named him after something beautiful and good. I mean, imagine someone gave you a nickname. Uh, John the Holy One, or, or, um, or Samuel the, the Praiser of God, or if they called you the Joyous One. They're saying something that is consistently true about you by giving you that nickname. What was consistently true about Barnabas was that he was an encourager. What can we learn from Barnabas's name? There are three things about encouragement here. The first is the source of the encouragement that surrounds Barnabas. The source of it. He, he didn't uh, produce this himself, first of all. There's a situation that produces this in Barnabas. And we see it in our chapter, in verse 33, it says, With great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and and the word should be great again. Great grace was upon them all. So verse 33 says, Great power was given to the apostles to witness, and great grace was upon the whole church because of that. That means that God's powerfully at work in this situation. And it's easy for us to look at it and say, well, that was then. But there's no reason we ought not to expect the same thing. 
We don't expect the, the physical miracles. We don't expect that. But the same power that operates in the hearts of these men is exactly the same power that, that ought to operate in our church. Great power was being displayed and great grace was upon them all. At the beginning of chapter 4, it says this, chapter 4, verse 4, many of those who heard the word believed and the number of the men came to be 5,000. Now, at the end of the gospel, there was about 500 disciples. And we know when Peter preached in the temple that first time, I think it was, is it 3,000 were saved in that one day? Great power and great grace was being admitted through the faithfulness of these men, the faith of these men, and the expectation of these men. In the same chapter, in verse 29 and 31, uh, Luke tells us this. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness we may speak your word. What a prayer that is. It's so confident and believing and it has no doubt in it. Lord, look on their threats, asking God to observe a situation and respond to it. And give your servants all boldness that we may speak. And in verse 31, that prayer is answered. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled shook, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. That's what's going on in this church that the beast is trying to devour. When he pulls the strings of power to go against the small body of believers, when Christ is at work, that the beast cannot contain the power of grace, the power of the Holy Spirit. These people ought not to be converted. They're Jews. They should hate this message. And yet, they're being converted in droves. And these men are being arrested. They were kept during the night in a cell and then brought before a council. Now, this isn't a presbytery they're brought before. It's a presbytery that's also a senate. They're, that This Sanhedrin was the government. They're not just brought before a church council. They're brought before Congress. And everyone in Congress hates what they believe. And yet, the more the beast squeezes Peter and John, they get out of the situation and they pray that they would be given more power. And it says that the room shook when they prayed. Now, Congress doesn't shake. It may shake if people stamp their feet, but it does not shake with the power of God. But this room where the church meets shook and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and then they spoke the word of God with boldness. You can see they spoke with boldness. Everywhere these men went, when they spoke with boldness, it had an effect. And people respected it, and people were transformed. They spoke with utter boldness. Now, why is all this important? It shows that Christ is at work in this situation from on high, as he's ascended. And he sent the third person of the Trinity in his place to fill this church and to behave exactly as he had behaved in his ministry, and it has an effect on all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and Israel. And it is working. It is transforming. And it is protecting them from the teeth of all of these assaults. And Barnabas is caught up in all of this. Barnabas sees this. Barnabas hears about this. Every time there's a test and the, church, the church's head is put on the block... Every time that it rises up in a tense situation where the church could be destroyed, God protects it. And, and they're taken off the block and the church isn't destroyed. And Barnabas is seeing this happen. And he's seeing that thousands are being saved and that the apostles are praying with boldness and they are being filled with the Holy Spirit. So he is encouraged. Barnabas, Joseph, is encouraged you cannot be encouraged unless you see something that encourages you. You cannot be encouraged unless you see God at work. And we see God at work in these chapters through the work of Christ and the presence of Christ in this situation. There is nothing as encouraging and empowering as seeing 
Christ's work in power. When we see Christ's work in power and we look at the instances among us where he is clearly at work and doing things that are unexpected, we ought to respond to that in faith and value it and see it as the powerful work of Christ. And great grace, if we're prayerful, will fall upon us all. Not just grace, if I could ever say such a thing. Grace is a cheap word today, isn't it? Everything is grace. Everyone says grace. And we've sucked out the value of the word. And the Holy Spirit leaves us in no doubt here. This isn't nice people being nice. This isn't a church that is just bubbling along nicely. It is great grace that falls upon the church. Power. Power of speech and thought and clarity of belief and assurance because they're seeing Christ at work. And not just his work, but his presence in this great power and great grace. For Christ said, I'm going away. I am going away, he told them. And they were terrified. And they were, they unraveled after the cross. He told them in John, in John in the upper room, I am going away, but I will not leave you orphans. That's how they felt. We will be orphans. It will be like having one of our arms cut off for you to leave us. But Christ told them, I am going away, but I will send you another helper, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. Yes, Jesus went away. Jesus went away. And we think that somehow depowers the church. We think that 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 weakens the church. And there's so many really weak messages and weak comments by Christians um, in the day in which we live that envisages it that way, that Christ is far away, we can't really know him, we just get on with things, and we completely misunderstand the doctrine of the church and the doctrine of the Acts of the Apostles. Yes, Jesus went away, but he says, for your benefit I go away. For if I do not depart, the helper will not come. Jesus left to give us more. We weren't diminished when he left. When Jesus left, he was so augmented and glorified that he poured out the Spirit on the church. We we wouldn't have had that unless he was on the throne and glorified. Jesus, with reverence, did not have the capacity to pour out the Spirit on millions of people if he remained in his humiliated state. He had to be exalted and leave us and go on high and rule over all things to send the Spirit. Now, what does he call the Spirit? The Helper. The Comforter. Sometimes it's translated. And the word is the Paraclete. I will send you the Paraclete. I was your Paraclete, and I'm going to send you the Paraclete. And the paraclete, that's two words, is para, like parallel. The paraclete is one who comes beside you, and cleat means to call upon. It's someone you call upon to come beside you and to defend you, to stand for you, to speak for you, and to empower you. Later on in the Bible, Jesus is called the advocate, and that's the same word. That Jesus was our advocate, he still is, and the Holy Spirit is here right now as our advocate. He is the the one who is parallel to us. So Jesus left, but he sent an immense paraclete, and see the effect of it in Acts of the Apostles. This book is a record of the Holy Spirit at work. That's exactly what this book is. This is the Holy Spirit at work in the church. So great power and great grace came upon them all. Many believed and they were, they prayed to be filled with the Spirit and with boldness. And they saw the work of Christ among them, transforming people. And they saw the presence of Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit, who is the one Christ sends to us and fills us with to do the work 
So that seeing that work and having the presence in us and next to us, beside us, to strengthen and uphold and to speak for us and to animate us, that is encouraging. That gives us heart and strength of heart. If we don't have that, if it diminishes, we shrivel up and become discouraged. But to have it there, to see it, and to, to, to have assurance and faith that the Spirit, the paraclete, is at work in this way, it encourages us. This is what Barnabas saw. He saw all this happen. He knew what Christ had said, and it didn't have to be a blind faith for him. He knew what Christ had said, and then he saw it at work. And he thought, this is amazing. The Holy Spirit is here. A divine person is at work among, among us. And when he comes, the room shakes, and we're filled with joy and boldness and power. And we go out with the gospel, and people are believing this. He was encouraged. It affected him so much, it made him an encourager of others. In chapter 11, verse 20, Luke tells us this about Barnabas. Some of the men who were traveling were from Cyprus and Cyrene, and they came to Antioch to preach to the Hellenists. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. So it happened again. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. There's something going on in Antioch. So they sent Barnabas to go to Antioch. And when he came and he saw the grace of God among them, he was glad and he encouraged them all with purpose of heart that they should continue in the Lord. You see that? The church was growing in Jerusalem and a work was going on in Antioch and a church became established there and they sent Barnabas to check it out. And when he saw what was going on, he was filled with gladness and he exhorted them to continue in the way and to be more bold in the faith. He's going around and he can taste the grace and the power of God. Later on, he himself preached he spoke and exhorted the church. He went and found a new convert called Saul. He found him. When he realized there was a work in Antioch, he went and found Saul and he brought him to Antioch because he knew that Saul was the man to take this forward. Barnabas did that. He came alongside Saul and Saul became Paul. And he placed him in Antioch, and the rest is literally history. Barnabas did that because he was so encouraged. He then began to work throughout the church as he saw the power of God, and he began to encourage others. So there's the, the source of the encouragement. That's where it all came from. It comes from Christ, his work. It comes from his presence and seeing the Holy Spirit as a comforter and encourager moving through the church and establishing joy and salvation and power and grace among all of these people who were turning from darkness to light. So he saw it. That's the source of it. But he also then encouraged others. Though he was encouraged by God, then he then spoke words of encouragement and was active in encouraging others. They call him the son of encouragement, not only because he was encouraged, but because he then displayed a consistent and clear gift for exhorting and comforting the church of Christ. We see this uh, throughout Acts. In Acts 11, as we saw there, Acts eleven twenty five and 26. Barnabas departed for Tarsus and sought Saul. When he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, so that it was for a whole year they assembled with the church and they taught many people. 
And the disciples were then first called Christians in Antioch. These two men went to this place and they preached the gospel and they taught and established a church with a teaching ministry for one year. And it was in that place that people began to see these are the Christians. That's where it all began. And Barnabas was part of it. In, um, in 19 and 23 of that chapter, we see again that he's encouraging others. In chapter 13 of Acts, verse 42 and 43. Acts 13, 42 and 43. Pete, uh, is it Paul or Peter has just preached a sermon? It's Paul that just preached a sermon. Then the Jews went out of the synagogue after Paul had preached. And the Gentiles begged them that these words might be preached to them again next Sabbath. And the congregation had broken up. Many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It is necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, to these Jews. But now it will go to the Gentiles. You you see what's happening here? Everything I described to you, he saw it all. And then you see him finding Paul, establishing a ministry in Antioch. And they're going around synagogues, proclaiming the word. And Barnabas is with Paul, persuading people, not just to hear it once, but to continue in the grace of God. They're spending time with these people, sometimes for up to a year. And they're coming beside them and exhorting and encouraging the church. That's what happens. That's what happens. When when we see the work of God, His true work, and we see sparks of grace and life start to ember up among us, And when we are faithful to Christ and we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we behave like the Holy Spirit. If we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we will come alongside and we will speak as the Holy Spirit speaks. And we will strengthen and exhort and encourage others. Luke gives us an overview of Barnabas later on in the book. And says he was a good man, filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with faith. I really wish someone would say that about me. Do you wish someone would say that about you? Filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with faith. That is someone who moves among the church with all the graces of the Holy Spirit. And whenever there's a spark of life, whenever there's a gospel to be preached, whenever there is a spiritual work to be done, it is not done with cynicism, it is not done with unbelief, it is not done with low expectation. Faith can take hold of the smallest thing, a mustard seed even. It can take hold of anything and it can turn it into a great work of God. That's where Barnabas had gotten to in his own soul, and his own communion with Christ. That when he went into these situations that should have been opposed and hard, he was able to minister and encourage and speak into these situations. So though Christ and the Holy Spirit do this work to encourage us, Barnabas sees it, and he, he enters into it with joy and faith, And then he ends up being the instrument of Christ. He behaves exactly like Christ. A comforter and an encourager. And we need to do the same. Barnabas was given this nickname, obviously, because he didn't just encourage with a few actions. He obviously spoke words of encouragement. Otherwise, why would they nickname him that? They nicknamed him that because he was always speaking by the Holy Spirit with belief and joy and love and trust in God in all situations and with wisdom. And we need to do the same. We need to be careful about our words. We need to speak the way Barnabas spoke. 
Listen to what the New Testament tells us about this. Paul says this, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good and for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Encourage, yes. Paul says here that these words edify. They build an edifice. They build up the church. These are good words, and they build up and impart grace to those who hear us. And then he adds this comment, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit, with whom you were sealed unto the day of redemption. Do not grieve him. The implication being that to not speak those words does grieve the Spirit of God. We need to be aware of that, that we speak in this way. In Colossians, he says this, put on tender mercies and kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. To the Thessalonians, he says, regarding the coming of Christ and its certainty, he says, encourage one another with these words. Jude says, build or edify yourself up on your most holy faith. And he said, do not be like the workers of darkness who grumble and complain. Now this is really important. Our words have power. Our words can define an effect. Our our words can erode or our words can plant uh, fruit in the church. All of these things. And when this man Joseph is labeled as the son of exhortation and encouragement, this means that he is so near Christ that when he speaks, it's life-giving, just like when Christ speaks. It is life-giving. Not corrupt, but to build up and impart grace and to give tenderness and kindness and meekness and to encourage one another with these words. So think about it. Think about your words. Think about your conversation. Just think about it as I have to think about mine. Um, When you speak, do you speak the word of God? And do you speak the same way that Christ speaks? It's actually very important. When people hear you, do they leave your presence built up? Do they know something of the scriptures? And do they know something of the grace of Christ? When they leave your presence, do they say, I know more about God because I heard that? Paul says to the Thessalonians, regarding the coming of Christ, encourage one another with these words. So if people are speaking with you all the time, but they never hear from you as a Christian, Christ may return soon. Or Christ may return today. And we must be urgent about the gospel and about our church. Why? Because Christ may return today. If they have never heard that coming from your lips, then there is a place in the New Testament that you or I are not being obedient to. We are told to do this. Do we do it? Do we speak these words? Let us be speakers of God's word. Now this doesn't mean that to impart grace and to edify um, and to be kind and humble and to encourage. It, this does not mean That everything we say is nice. That is not what it means. It is not about being a nice guy. It's far deeper than that. That is so superficial. Yet we are to be rooted in the kindness of God. And in the love of God. But that means sometimes that things must be said. That the world wouldn't categorize as nice. 
So Paul doesn't mean that. I mean, Paul could speak pretty firmly. He took Peter aside in Antioch when Peter saw the Jews coming for dinner and Peter ran and sat at another table so that he would not be seen with the Gentiles. And Paul saw it happen. And he said, he tells the Galatians, I rebuked him in the presence of all for he was to be blamed. Paul saw it as so important that the Gentiles not be treated that way in the church that Paul rebuked Peter. And the list goes on. I'm sure you know what I'm saying. So take this pattern of Barnabas as an encourager and as an edifier and as one who imparts grace, but but don't make it superficial and unbiblical. I mean, God, all his words are good. But God can speak very firmly to us. So it's not an exhortation to be lukewarm and tepid and and nice, no matter what. That just means we have no character. But it is an exhortation to make sure that we aren't walking around with a scriptureless tongue or a tongue that never speaks in faith or edification or grace. So think about that practically in our church. Just make sure that when you speak that you are giving people an opportunity to believe. Make sure that when you speak you're giving people an opportunity to think about God. When you go out of this place week by week and you naturally converse with people, make sure there's something in there that's from the Word of God. You owe it to that person. That's what Christ expects of us, to encourage one another with the words of Christ. Make sure you're emitting grace, not just the natural world way of uh, speaking. And it doesn't mean be nice and let your conversation be so empty that, that it, it doesn't move or shake or or achieve anything. It's it when when someone is in the hospital and they die and the heart monitor goes to flatline, let's let's make sure our conversation isn't like that. Let's make sure our conversation is not spiritually flatlined. If only we had a monitor on us to beep to warn us when we're speaking in a spiritually dead way. No. Our spiritual conversation should be nice and healthy and consistent. It should be. Let us be fountains of the Word of God and of the Spirit of Christ. Christ said, If any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And if you believe in me, as the Scriptures have said, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. That's a Christian. A Christian will have out of their heart a river of living water life-giving water that other people can drink from and live. So he was encouraged and then he spoke words of encouragement. He is the son of encouragement. But lastly, he was also practically encouraging. He didn't only speak and exhort and teach and help Paul and use opportunities to speak the word of God to others, we're told that at this time the church was so moved by this great grace and power that it even affected the way they were living among each other and what they did with their possessions. And Barnabas, in verse 37, having a strip of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. That's a wonderful thing that is born fruit in this situation. Christ is at work. The Spirit is moving and spreading the gospel. And the church, in our context, it would be our congregation, the church, as they see the gospel working and saving people, the church unites and there is a oneness and a unity of heart that, that Luke clearly tells us about here, the multitude of those who believed, verse 32. 
in our passage. The multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and neither did anyone say that any of the things he owned were his own, but they had all things in common. That rose up in that power and grace and salvation that was moving among them. And all their hearts rose to the surface and were buoyant and filled with joy and faith and expectation. It's a healthy church. And they're buoyant there. And what do they start to do? Let's all help one another. And this isn't about practically helping one another. I mean, I could offer to cut your grass or whatever. That's not what this is. This is because this church is new. They've all been excommunicated from synagogues. And the church needs resources. And people are giving more than God commands uh, them to give. Um, So this wasn't expected of them. This is not about tithing or anything like that. What's happening here is Barnabas, when God's at work like this, the church does things like this. Barnabas sees people giving things to the church. Barnabas sees the apostles who, who have no work apart from being apostles. They can't sustain themselves. And Barnabas has a home and possessions, but he has this extra piece of land that he's not using. He may have inherited it because it's something to do with being a Levite. I don't know. But he doesn't need it, and it's worth money. So he just sells it. He just sells it. He could be dead soon. He could be killed by the Sanhedrin. He doesn't care. He just sells the land, and he lays it at the apostles' feet. How humble he is. I mean, he was a Levite. He worked in the temple, but he's willing to go to the feet of Peter and John, two fishermen. And he gives the money there because it's not for Peter and John, it's for Jesus Christ. That unity and oneness always rises up when the Spirit is at work among people. And things like our possessions or our time and all these things, we, they do kind of, they do rotate and take on a new kind of setting. We view them differently. And we're not as, uh, we don't hold on to our time as much or our money or what, whatever the thing is. We're not as uh, prickly about that. When the Spirit is at work and the, the heart of the church is flowing with grace, there is this liberality and willingness and belief to give of all these things because we believe that the church is exploding with grace and power. And we want to give into that because it's the only kingdom that matters. So the church here in chapter 4 was a gospel-centered and a gospel-purposed body. The believers who entered this church then did not have one foot in half a kingdom and another foot in another kingdom. They had both feet in the kingdom of Christ. They didn't care about the kingdoms of this world. All of their resources and time and affections were subject to this one important and supreme kingdom. All the earth's kingdoms and their pursuits of Rome and Israel were gone and they had caught a heavenly vision through the work of the Spirit and the salvation that was being wrought amongst them all, they caught a heavenly vision that they were citizens of heaven. And they set their mind on eternal things, and they heeded the words of the Master. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. That—that's Barnabas bought into all that. He'd been a proud Jew, but now he's buying into this, as we all need to buy into it. We move our feet into that kingdom and we stand there and we give up on the world and all of its toys and all of its games and all of the little pleasures it may give us. Most of them aren't necessary. And we we open up a new passport that says citizen of heaven. Don't belong in this place anymore. And he lays up treasure in heaven. This... is the fruit rising to the surface in a very practical way because the sap of Christ and the Spirit's work, which was point one, 
moving into Barnabas being engaged in an encouraging, edifying, speaking role in the church. The sap is going through the branch from the Holy Spirit through his obedience and his words and his faith and his excitement in what Christ is doing. It's going through the branch. And then in verse 37, the sap sprouts out and you see the fruit. And the fruit is, here's my land. This is what I can give. doesn't have to be the land. Many people did many other things for the apostles and Christ. It's not about giving something you own. It's about what the fruit represents. That This is just one of the things Barnabas did. There are so many apples on this tree throughout this book. This is just one of the apples. But it's all coming from everything he saw. You remember in the next chapter, Ananias and Sapphira, they weren't spiritual. And, and they looked at all this going on and they thought, we want to be part of this. And they, they went and sold something. They copied Barnabas. And before they went to the apostles, they had a discussion. It's a lot of money. $50,000. It's a good price for our, for our land. Everyone else is giving what they have. We got a good price for this land. Let's, let's, let's give $25,000 to the apostles. But when we go and present it to them, we'll pretend that that was the whole cost. Because we want to be as zealous as someone like Barnabas. And you know the rest of the story. That the Holy Spirit revealed to Peter. That this was hypocrisy and pride and devilish. And he says, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? And the solemnity of the Spirit acting in that congregation in Acts 5. And the two of them drop dead. And it's just a lesson for us at the beginning of the Christian church about the way the Holy Spirit views this. This isn't a game. We're not playing around. We're not, we didn't join a club here. This is not a club. We're not in charge here. The Holy Spirit is watching all of us. And Barnabas gives all that he has and we praise God that the Holy Spirit rejoices in what Barnabas does. But look at the other side. And the, di- the only difference is that the fruit looked similar. The difference is that the branch, it didn't come from the right place. It, the sap did not come from the right place. It did not come from beholding the power of God in these people being saved. And the prayer that filled the room and the room shaking, it, di- it didn't come from there. Ananias and Sapphira, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't understand uh, that. So far as, as, as I close, I, I took this sermon because um, Barnabas is such, it's such a, a positive and wonderful example of an encourager. Uh, for us, we really need to um, look at a place like Acts 4 the kind of thing that God does in Christ in the church. And we need to make sure that that as we look for God to work around us and to see souls saved and to see other souls that are already saved built up and becoming very strong, obedient Christians, we need to make sure that every thing that is spiritual that God does, that we respond in faith and that we, we value it and that we are prayerful and prayerful with each other. There's power in this stuff, friends. Real power. It doesn't bother me at all how many people are here tonight. Does, I don't care. That isn't the point. We're talking about power here. And the power that is promised to us is no different than this. We can see the lame walk if we will believe and if we will be expectant 
And if we will look to in prayer with straining our souls and exercising our souls in prayer to cry out for this with expectation and faith, we can see this, no matter what the opposition in the country. And once we see God begin to work and to change people and to save people inexplicably that we don't expect, we don't know who's going to walk in here at all. None of us do. When we see that, it ought to encourage us, not discourage us. It ought to encourage us. And then we ought to encourage each other as believers. And even to a pastor, we ought to encourage each other. And don't take the boy that floats on the water the orange boy I'm talking about, the floating piece of plastic that fishermen use. Don't take that and drag it down. Hold it up. Encourage God's people. And let the sap through your prayers and worship and coming to this place expectantly. Let that sap work through the branch and let the fruit come out. And let's show this fruit and manifest this fruit. Because there is great power and great grace that the Holy Spirit gives us. This man was called the son of encouragement. And look how much he encouraged. What is your nickname? May God bless these thoughts to our needy 